Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Esther chapter 5. I will join you in finding it. Esther chapter 5. We have made it to the main sequence of drama in Esther. So the title of the message this morning is Providence in Motion. We are going to see uh, after last week, the, the scene was set, the decision was made. Esther told Mordecai, go and find the Israelites, hold a fast for me for three days and three nights. I will go to the king to see if he can spare us, and if I perish, I perish. That was where we left off last week. Today, we continue that pace with chapter 5, which takes place all in one day. So it's important for us to remember that if we, if we think about the story of Esther, the first three chapters happen over the course of like seven years, nine years, right? In the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, in the seventh year, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus' reign. We see that there's a lot of time, uh, a lot of ground being covered in those first three chapters. Then when we get to Esther 4 and Esther 5, it really slows down, right? So Esther chapter 5 also takes place just in one day. And when we get to Esther 6 and beyond, it's going to happen over the course of just a few more days. We ended last week with a cliffhanger. Uh, so if you're into watching like a serial TV series that where it's not just episodic, but it all makes sense, it all uh, adds together, you understand how a cliffhanger works. You, you get to the end of a show and you don't know what's going to happen next and you have to find out next week or find out next time. And the story of Esther is the same way. Esther is willing to give her life for the sake of her people. She's going to go to the king to try to save Israel from Haman's wicked decree. But the law says, if you go to the king unannounced, you deserve to die. Today, we're continuing the drama of Esther's plan and Haman's fury both unfolding. Will she survive? Will she live? Will she be able to save her people? Will Haman get what he really wants, which is the destruction not just of Mordecai, but of all the people of God? Well, let's find out. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are so thankful that we have your word. It is powerful and authoritative and we lovingly submit to its truth, its teachings, its content, because it is the very Word of God. And Lord, we want to be changed by You. We want Your Spirit to move among us and, and transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And the main way that happens is through apprehension and greater faith in Your Word. So God, help us to understand who You are as we read this text, help us to understand who we are in light of our sin and your great grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just two points this morning, two characters and, and two streams moving together ever so closer until they will ultimately collide here soon in the story of Esther. And that's Esther and Haman. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first point or the first thing to write down is that Esther's plan begins. Esther's plan begins. We read those first two verses and we say, if we're actually reading the drama as though it is a drama, we read those first two verses and say, 
whew, she made it. She survived. The the scepter was held out for her by King Ahasuerus. She will not be killed for her encroachment on the throne. But notice, don't just fly over this. Notice for our own soul, for our own application, what kind of boldness this would take. After the fast, she went in with her royal robes to the inner court of the palace. She was impossible to miss. The king, having seen her, gave her favor. Esther was emboldened. She was encouraged. She was brave to do what was right. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. All right, so we read this and we think, okay, here she is. She's setting it up. She's asked the king and Haman to come to a feast. It's just going to be these three people. Because we remember this this request taking place, uh, Esther standing before the throne of the king, was not a private event. I mean, there are attendants and there are guards and there are servants going all around the palace. And so this would have been a very public scene. So Esther is saying, hey, look, King Ahasuerus, let me get you and, and Haman off to a feast that I've prepared. I, I need to ask you something there. And it seems that the king has been offering her a massive amount of favor, right? He even says, whatever you ask up to half of my kingdom. Now, that's probably not literal. It's probably not that Ahasuerus would actually give her half a kingdom. It seems to be more of an idiom or a, a kind of a colloquial phrase that means, try me. I'm in a good mood. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. It's the same thing that we read in Mark chapter 6 when Herodias' daughter goes before King Herod and Herod says, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom when she asks for the head of John the Baptist. Also remember that that Esther has to get the king away from the public eye because her identity has to be revealed. She's a Jew. She's a part of the people that he has decreed to be destroyed. Furthermore, the king has to know that something big is bothering Esther. Esther knows the law. The king knows the law. So the only reason the queen would break the law and and Uh, give herself over to the threat of death by the king, the only reason that would happen is if something really, really important was on her mind. So the king has some signs of actual concern. What, What is it? What troubles you? What do you request? Why else would you put yourself in such danger to approach my throne without being summoned? So the king quickly responds to her invitation. Uh, in our day, his response might have been like, well, attendants, you, you heard the woman, go find, and, go find Haman and let's go to this feast. Let's do what she says. Ironically, if you remember Esther chapter 1, the end of that chapter uh, went out with a decree to all of the Persian Empire saying that the men should be masters of their own homes and should not submit to the desires of their wives and their wives should not have any authority in their families. Well, look who's the master of the home Now, this phrase literally says that the king acted according to the word of Esther. It's ironic. We should understand that the narrator of this text wants us to see him chip away slowly at the foolishness of this empire. So here are Esther, Ahasuerus the king, and Haman, the second in command, the enemy of the Jews, feasting together. The camera zooms into the drama that's about to unfold in verse 6. Is this when she's going to make 
the play? Is this when she's going to ask to be saved? Is this when she's going to defend the people of God and call out Haman for his wickedness? Look at verse 6. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Second time he has asked her this. Verse 7, Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it may please the king, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. What? She'd set the scene perfectly. She set the table. She gave them this feast. They are feeling good. He's been drinking wine. He's in a great mood. He asks her a second time, whatever you want, I will give to you. And she says, my wish and my request is that you come back tomorrow for another feast. What's happening here? Is Esther getting cold feet? Is she starting to hesitate on whether or not she really will be the mediator for God's people? No, I think like a giant fish, Esther is slowly but surely reeling them in. See, we see in the story that Esther is clever. She's shrewd. She's cunning. And she has to be sure that the king is put in a position that he cannot refuse her request. Now that he's enjoyed one feast and agreed to come to another, he will surely ask her a third time to tell him what's bothering her. And for the king to refuse her after three requests at that point would be a humongous shame on him. Ian Duguid helpfully reminds us, in contrast to other biblical stories, what Esther is doing. He says, unlike Moses and Elijah, she had no dramatic signs and wonders that she could call upon to convince a skeptical audience. If you were here Wednesday night, you read about Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, and you saw it was a very big, dramatic presentation of God's power, a very clear sign that the Lord is God. That doesn't exist here. Duguid continues, instead, she would have to follow the best strategy she could come up with and rely on God to make it effective in changing the king's heart. So Queen Esther was waiting patiently. She was orchestrating her request to come at the perfect time, which would be tomorrow evening. She would have to convince the king to honor the Jews instead of destroying them, and she would have to silence Haman. For our own lives and thinking about our own problems and situations, often it is the right and wise thing to be like Daniel, to confront them head on, to be unflinchingly bold in the face of persecution. But other times, biblical wisdom will lead us to a more indirect approach, like patience, gentleness, meekness when we approach our problems, because these are all virtues that we see in Jesus as well as boldness and direct courage to confront our problems. So Esther's plan begins. Well, you saw that Haman was a part of this feast. Haman is feeling really good. He was the only guest invited to a feast between the king and the queen. So he's on cloud nine. He is feeling great. But the second thing we see as the providence in motion of today is that Haman's fury grows. Haman's fury grows. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful 
and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman was on top of the world, a private feast for him and the king and the queen, and an invitation to another feast just like it tomorrow. Haman had made it. Second in command only to the king, has the complete trust of the king to annihilate the people of God. He is doing everything awesome. He's feeling great about his status in life, except for Mordecai. This one man refused to acknowledge his greatness and prestige, and it burned him up. Just like that, Haman's good mood, his happiness was totally spoiled. It was ruined. Now, why the swing? How is it that Haman could be so honored and feel so good about himself and so good about his life and then immediately have it snuffed out by one person's lack of recognition? It's because Haman had an idol. Something was ultimate in his life that consumed his affections and his desires and his strategies. And when that ultimate thing in his life was threatened, emotions turned sour and anger boiled. Ian Duguid is again really helpful here. So I'm just going to read a quote from him. He says, what Haman Haman craved above all things was not simply significance, but rather being seen to be significant. Haman's failure to instill either fear or respect in his enemy pricked his bubble and turned his joy into wrath. Haman's whole world revolved around his fragile ego. And when it was stroked, as when the invitation came to Esther's party, he felt blessed, even though nothing in the real world had actually changed. His power had not actually increased, yet Haman rejoiced. Likewise, his power was not really diminished by Mordecai's refusal to bow, yet Haman was incensed by it. His emotional strings were being pulled by his idol, which was public respect. When that idol was fed, he felt good. But when his idol was challenged, it led him to malice and anger. The same malice that caused his earlier decree to eliminate the Jewish people. His joy and his anger were simply the outward expressions of his heart's idolatry. Haman had an idol. And when that idol is threatened, we lash out. When human hearts have ultimate things that are threatened, we want to defend those idols, and it leads us to sin. So how did Haman respond? Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So Haman held his peace. He didn't lash out at Mordecai right then. He went home and he surrounded himself with advisors. He surrounded himself with friends, with family, with counselors who could speak into his life. He needed some advice. He needed to know what to do next. But notice 
Notice Haman's arrogance, his pride, his ego. All he does is talk about how great he is, how blessed he is, how deserving he is. He told his friends and his wife how many sons he had. Like, who needs to be reminded? Like, I'm the mother. Like, I know how many sons you have. He's so wrapped up in his own glory. And apparently, apparently these counselors just decided to listen. But all this, Haman says, all of these blessings, my children, my riches, my glories, my honor, all of these things, he says, is worth nothing to me. Can you imagine uh, looking at your friends and at your wife and saying, all of the things that I have are worth nothing to me as long as that guy doesn't give me what I want? How'd that make you feel? And yet, these counselors decide to give him horrendous advice. All this is worth nothing as long as Mordecai is here not paying me respect. And we think this is ridiculous. This is so silly. He has all of this prestige, all of this honor, all of this blessing through his children, through his friends, through his status. From our standpoint, we look and say, Haman is acting absurd, but are we not the same? Are we not the same when our idols are threatened? Because we all have idols that cause us to think and act horrendously when they're threatened. Haman was in need of counselors who loved him and wanted not primarily his happiness to be in check, but his holiness. And yet they were bent on giving him advice that would make him happy and not righteous. We'll see that in just a moment. But turn the camera back on us. We have idols. What causes us to get emotional? Emotions might not always just rise to the surface. So if I'm looking at some like junior high or high school boys and you're like, I'm not ever emotional. I haven't shed a tear since I was six years old and fell off my bike. All of us have emotions. All of us are emotional creatures. They may not always rise to the surface, but they're there. What makes you happy? Like, do you know how to answer that question? Like what, what things in this world make you really, really happy? Or what things in this world make you really, really angry? Because if you can answer those questions honestly, you may be able to uncover idols in your own heart. The work of the Christian life, as we look back on the story of Esther and apply it to our own lives as those who are now in Christ, the work of the Christian life includes constantly, daily, putting our idols to death. It's not a one and done event. It's not when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ that we're forever done with dealing with idolatry. Listen to John Calvin on our knack for idolatry. He says, we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And that's a really common quote from John Calvin, that our nature, what's deep within us, who we are, we are a factory that perpetually creates idols. But he continues, listen to this. He says, man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance 
as God. We are really good at taking normal, regular, ordinary things, hollowing them out for what they really are for, and putting them on a pedestal and worshiping them as God. It could be your comfort. It could be money. It could be possessions. It could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be achievement. It could be a GPA. It could be a certain look. It could be a a certain number of followers on social media. It could be a certain number of interactions on social media. We're really good at making idols. And like Haman, our idols in our own heart need to be put to death, not fed. Good counselors will help us identify our idols. So you and I need each other to look in our own lives and poke and prod to see if we might expose those things in our life that we desire to be ultimate, but ultimately are hollow. What Haman needs are counselors to expose his idolatry. But let's see what he gets instead. Look at verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows or a stake, 50 cubits high, that is 75 feet. Let it be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it or impaled upon it, depending on your translation. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, this is really bad news for a lot of reasons. First of all, this is insane. Guys, I just have a problem. This guy just isn't respecting me. Here's what you need to do. Make a pole 75 feet high, and tomorrow morning, throw him on the pole. That's a great idea. Like, this is insane and unbelievably vile, and unbelievably wicked. It's terrible counsel. To answer Haman's problem this way is to go in the opposite direction. The the answer to Haman's problem is not to kill Mordecai and make a public spectacle of him. What Haman needs is for his idol to be addressed and put to death, not satisfied through the death of Mordecai. So here's another set of diagnostic questions. I asked you earlier, what makes you really, really, really happy? What makes you really, really, really angry? Here's some more questions you may want to consider asking yourself. Is there anything I don't have that I would be willing to sin to get? Is there anything I don't have that I would be willing to sin to get? Now, when we're like around each other and you're like, I would never sin to get anything I don't have because that would be sinful and that's terrible. But if you're really honest with yourself, ask yourself the question, is there something I don't have that if I were presented an option that I could sin to get it, would I do it? Whatever that thing is, it's an idol. Here's another question. What do I have that I would be willing to sin to keep? What do I have that I would be willing to sin to keep? Whatever that thing is, it's an idol. Instead of helping Haman deal with his emotions and root out his idol of significance and perception, his counselors call for him to run harder after it. 
And this leads to the second great problem of this verse. Esther's feast is tomorrow evening. But Haman is going to have Mordecai killed tomorrow morning. And Esther has no idea. So what's going to happen next? Well, like any good TV show, you'll have to find out next week. Or you could just read ahead uh, on your own time. But as we think about concluding from Esther chapter 5, we realize that this continued tension points us to the fact that God is still setting the table for the redemption of his people. I mean, we ultimately know how the story ends, right? The, the Jews are still here with us, meaning somehow Esther is successful. He's still working behind the ordinary affairs of Mordecai, Haman, his counselors, Esther, the king. Everyone involved is involved in God's providence. And soon enough, the unfolding of his plan will begin to really be revealed. God's people will be delivered. Another point to consider is the great contrast we see in this text between the king of the world empire and our king. Ahasuerus only receives those who have appointments. He has no time for anyone else. They deserve death for approaching his throne. And in a very real sense, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, if we were to stand before the Lord on our own, we deserve death. But in Christ Jesus, we now have access to the throne of God, which is now for us not a throne of judgment, not a throne of wrath, but a throne of grace, Hebrews tells us. At all times, for you and for me as Christians, at all times, God is waiting on us to approach Him so that we might find blessing and love in His presence. He is ready and willing to hear all of our requests, and he always gives us, maybe not what we want, but he always gives us what we need. But that access, that freedom with which we can come before the Lord in confidence to receive mercy and grace, that access was not free. No, it came at great cost. Because our mediator, who went before the king on our behalf, was also our substitute. Jesus took our shame, our guilt, and our sin and paid our debt so that His righteousness might bring us into God's presence. He was a public spectacle, raised up on a piece of wood for the world to see. Evil paraded around it as though it had won. But through the work of Christ, we have access to God. We no longer walk around with the fear of or threat of death because of our sin. We now can go to Him in wonderful confidence and receive wonderful blessings. The indwelling Holy Spirit is given to us so that now we really can put our idols to death. Nothing compares to God and His kindness. So maybe the right response for you and for me as we think about Esther 5 is yeah, to to ask the Lord, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way within me. Are there idols in my heart like Haman that lead me away from righteousness, away from your glory? Maybe, and this is not a Sunday school churchy answer, so don't feel like it has to be. Maybe your right response to this text is to worship, to praise the Lord that he has given you 
access to his throne of grace. Access that you and I could never have earned, would never deserve. And yet he freely gives us. That the king of kings who upholds the universe, that's orchestrating all events for his sovereign purposes, is also at all times waiting for you to come. He's that involved and invested in your life and mine. Let's pray together. God, even when we pray to you, we can be reminded that the only reason we can pray is because we have access. That we can approach the throne of the Father by the blood of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We pray now that our conversations around these groups in the next couple of minutes would be fruitful. As we think about our own idols, as we think about running after righteousness, as we think about the boldness that it takes to be a faithful follower of Jesus and that the Holy Spirit empowers us with a spirit of boldness, not of fear. God, we worship you for your great grace, your great power, and the great comfort that it is to know that all things that happen, happen through your providential care. So Lord, I pray that you might help us to be transformed by your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.